Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, October 23rd, we're studying 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. We encounter the first of the trustworthy sayings in the pastoral epistles. This one is one that is very well known due to a beloved hymn. The death of Jesus is for all sinners, even for the very worst. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sean Kilgo. Pastor Kilgo serves at the Northeast Kansas Lutheran Partnership. Pastor Kilgo, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Hey, thanks for having me back. So we get started this morning, Pastor Kogo. Let's talk a little context. We've only seen one previous text here in this epistle. We've seen Paul identify himself, identify Timothy, give his initial charge to Timothy. Today, we've got the, the next part of this epistle. What do we need to know about context, about this epistle, about the pastoral epistles going into the section we've got today? Well, I, I think one of the main things to, to keep in mind is... Uh, well, maybe two things, one of which is that this is written uh, very late in St. Paul's life. Um, he's already been um, on a number of missionary journeys. Uh, this is, I believe, I remember correctly, during his third missionary journey. Um, it's, I believe, in between stents in jail as well. Um, he is, as he, as he mentions earlier, he's in Macedonia, um, and he's uh, providing now this is one of kind of the neat things is you get a glimpse into the transition between the apostolic period of the church and the rest of the life of the church where you just have, you know, normal pastors who can't go and do things like raise the dead. Uh, so you get uh, St. Timothy coming along as that example here. And St. Paul leaves him, tells him to stay in Ephesus. So St. Timothy becomes the uh, pastor in Ephesus. And this is going to be important throughout I would say all of first and second Timothy to keep in mind, because the things that he's dealing with in Ephesus are going to be similar problems that, uh, St. Paul has already talked about, uh, uh, when, when he writes the letter to the Ephesians, right? So the various, uh, controversies and stuff that are, that are going on there, um, uh, this is going to come up in the background and the things that St. Timothy is going to have to continue fighting against. Um, as he, you know, St. Paul will exhort him to f continue fighting the good fight. Um, so it's kind of like the the um, the passing of the sword, so to speak, uh, to Timothy. So we, we want to just keep that in mind. And uh, while this, you know, Second Timothy is like right at the end of St. Paul's life, th this is not too far removed from that either. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, w when you hear kind of all of these. Uh, the, these urgings and these pleadings and this sort of stuff coming from St. Paul. Um, I think part of that is that St. Paul knows very well, this, this is, I'm at the end of my life. I'm at the end of uh, my ministry as an apostle, and I need to make sure that these things are being passed along uh, properly. So that the, the church continues to be well cared for, which, you know, it does God be praised. Mm -hmm. So, 
In terms of the connections to the epistle to the Ephesians, uh, it's an interesting thought to, to put these side by side, given that Timothy is serving there in Ephesus. Are there any particular spots where you, you notice a connection between that epistle and the things Paul addresses in First and Second Timothy? I, I did not get enough uh, of a chance to kind of sit down and, and kind of lay them side by side. Um, and, and off the top of my head, I, I can't think of, of any, um, but I'm sure... I, I agree. I think it'd be a really, really interesting thing to to kind of take Ephesians in one hand and, you know, Timothy in the other hand and just kind of read them one eye on each. And I think if you if you do that, you're going to end up seeing a number of um, uh, a number of connections between the two. Um, but yeah, off the top of my head, I can't I can't think of any other than, you know, Ephesians does have this. um uh, th- this emphasis on um, being united um, in it, right? And in, in an interesting way, uh, um, the, the the letters to to Timothy are going to hit on this, uh, kind of from a different angle, kind of how how the unity actually takes place, and we'll get a little bit of that actually today with with things like excommunication. Um, that that there is a unity that's found in in doctrine, and that there's a unity that that has to be fought for, right? It's, it's not just going to, you know, magically show up as nice as that would be. Um, and so I think that's that's maybe one uh, connection that that the listeners could could look for, hold one in one hand and one in the other. Yeah, I, I could see that. You got you got Ephesians two, where Paul talks about the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile being broken down in Christ. And then of course, Ephesians four is a very classic passage where he, he talks about, you know, there is, there's one God, there's one church over and over. He says the word one like seven times, I think within the space of three verses. Yep. Uh, so that, that idea of unity that's there in first Timothy, particularly, and we saw this in the previous text, especially that that unity has to be found in true doctrine in sound, healthy doctrine. It's not going to be found outside of it. So that, that's at least one connection. And and maybe as we, we continue through this series, we can find more connections between Timothy and the letter to the Ephesians. Today, we've got 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason— that in me as the foremost, Christ Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. 
That's the text for today, 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 20. So one one thing that stands out to me, Pastor Gogo, there in verse 12, is Paul says, I, I thank him, I thank God. We often see a thanksgiving in Paul's letters. Mm-hmm. Here we have a thanksgiving of sorts. It's a bit different than some of the others. When he's writing to a church, he usually says, I thank God for you. Here he's he's got a different reason for thanksgiving, but it is a thanksgiving that we're seeing from Paul. Right. Here particularly, he says, he thanks God who's given him strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful. Now, that's a that's an interesting way for Paul to get started, that the Lord would judge him faithful before he even became an apostle. What's going on here? Yeah, so one of the things is uh, there's a couple of ways that you can take that, right? You can take faithful as being one who has faith, or you can take faithful as being uh, one who... Uh, does what they're supposed to do with the things given to them. And I think that we should take it as as the second, that that St. Paul is judged to be faithful with what the Lord has given to him. Uh, but alongside that, we should remember, as St. Paul's going to remind us in, in a minute, it is uh, previous history, that the Lord, um, in his calling of St. Paul, uh, makes him a faithful steward of the gifts that he's going to give to him, right? He doesn't call St. Paul because he's already faithful. Like he, he makes St. Pa- Paul faithful in his calling, right? Um, and this is, you know, when we hear the word word judged, right? It, this, is, um, this is declarative language, right? Uh, and, I, and I think we lose that sometimes in our, in our English hearing uh, that, that we think... Um, we're just, we're, we're always stating a reality of what we're, of like what's going on instead of the, the way the Lord will use this very often is that he will, um, he'll judge something that is, he will, you know, cause a reality to come into being because of his judgment, Mm -hmm. right? Because of his declaration of it. Um, so that things like, uh, justification is our being judged, not guilty, on account of our sins, because Christ has stood in our place. And so that judgment affects then a reality. It brings about a new reality in us that we then stand before the Lord um, as his beloved children and not as enemies. So uh, so the Lord judging St. Paul to be faithful is, is him actually affecting the reality. Um, he's making him faithful. Uh, he's, he's not calling him because he was already faithful. And there's a, a phrase, I'm trying to remember kind of the, the common phrase. Um, God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called or something like that, right? Same sort of idea going on here. Um, now, we, we don't want to push this too far, I don't think. Um, like with that saying, I, I will push back a little bit on that saying, because it the implication is that, you know, the Lord can just, the Lord's just going to throw you out into the, into the, you know, into the world without any training, right? Um, and as we'll get to this a little bit later with the idea of fighting and stuff, um, the the Lord trains us for the fight, right? And He trains pastors for the fight, right? The, the Lord doesn't. The Lord very well could have come along as Jesus, called some apostles, and you know, the very next day gone to the cross, right? But instead, the Lord spends three years teaching them first. And then he goes to the cross. And I don't think we should look past that. And then the church from this has had the tradition uh, of training her pastors, right? Of, of standing other under under other pastors 
uh, for some amount of time to to learn from them, uh, to learn doctrine, to learn uh, how to be a pastor and all these sorts of things. This now we go to the seminary for this, and that's a good thing. Like I I can't I cannot fathom trying to be a pastor without the training that I received from the seminary. I mean, I uh, you talk with a lot of pastors and they're like, man, I kind of wish I would have had more. Right. Because you're, you're always running into stuff that, that you've got to deal with and, and you weren't really trained for it. But if, if you get that that basic training, then you can you know kind of figure it out. Um, so we don't want to push it too far. But but the Lord does. Uh, he does call out of his mercy, uh, not out of uh, kind of some sort of reward. Right. That's the idea. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's similar to uh, maybe the, the verse in Genesis 15, where the Lord credits to right. Abraham righteousness, that that it is the Lord's declaration that brings this reality about St. Paul is experiencing the same thing here in the Lord's judgment. His He has been considered faithful because of the Lord's declaration, not because of anything that he's done. In fact, everything that Paul's done up to this point is is quite terrible. And he he begins to rehearse a bit of his history in verse 13. He says, formerly, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Take us through those three terms that Paul uses to describe his history prior to his conversion. Yeah, so there, there's kind of an interesting intensifying that's going on here from blasphemer to persecutor. Insolent opponent, there, there's a, um, in that word, there is a denotation of uh, physical violence. Uh, and so there's kind of the, this movement from uh, blaspheming is is primarily going to be in a uh, uh, kind of a speaking manner. Uh, the, the persecuting doesn't necessarily have to be physical, right? You, you can persecute Christians in a non-physical way, right? You can just make it more difficult for their uh, for them to go to the temple, you can just kind of make their lives uh, just annoying uh, to live, right? Because they're a Christian versus kind of the physical persecution that you would see. Uh, it was something something like the stoning of St. Stephen, right? And and I would say that that's the, that's the movement up to then the stoning of St. Stephen. That's the insolent opponent, right? There's kind of this... this um, uh, uh, this physical fighting against the Lord and his church, right? Um, Gerhard, I'm just going to read Gerhard because it's short and, and he summarizes this, I think, really nicely. Uh, Gerhard says, the first, therefore, the first grade of sin was blasphemy or cursing. The second was persecution, which is a greater sin than cursing. The third was violence, which is the greatest sin of all since it adds cruelty to persecution. Um, and so one of the things he's drawing out in there is there's kind of this, this intentional malice that, that comes across in this insolent opponent idea. And I like the phrase. I just, um, we, we need to remember there, there's physical violence that's kind of behind that as well. Yeah. I mean, to see the, the intensification there from blasphemer to persecutor to, to a violent, uh, a persecutor, a physical violence. I, I like that. That's helpful to know what insolent opponent actually means. Now, even though this is who Paul was, and you can, you can find this in the book of acts. Like you said, he's, he is, first brought up the one who's holding the the coats there at the stoning of Stephen. And then he is the one who's going off to Damascus. He's, he's working on further persecution in the church. You can see this in the book of Acts, this history that Paul acknowledges here. He says, I received mercy though. I received mercy because I had agnet, acted ignorantly in unbelief. The, the 
words because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, I, I think are, are worth a bit of attention. It, it almost sounds like ignorance would be an excuse for sin, but I don't think that's what St. Paul is saying. Right. Um, so, so ignorance, uh, is, is kind of an interesting word because it's, um, it's gnosis, uh, which is the, the, the word for, um, for knowledge with what's called an alpha privative at the beginning, which is where Greek will just take an A and it'll put it in the, an alpha and it'll put it out the front of the word to flop the meaning. Right. So it's, um, it's, it's against or not knowledge is what, what ignorance is here, which, which means that he doesn't know who Jesus is. He doesn't know what the true church is. Um, uh, there's, there's a very great, um, parallel with this in, um, the Lord's own life when he is on the cross and he prays father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Um, father, forgive them for their ignorance. Right. Um, and there is a distinction between that and the willful and intentional sin, um, uh, particularly against persecuting the church, but just in general, right? there's a, there's a difference between being ignorant of a sin, um, or, or struggling with a sin and, uh, intentionally sinning. So like the, the author of the Hebrews and Moses and Leviticus both, uh, use this language of the unintentional sins of the people when it talks about the sacrifice. And that's a really important note. Um, because what it, it what it helps us to see in this is that while ignorance is not um, a, uh, what would you say, a, an excuse for the sin, um, it does allow still for the Lord's mercy on that sin, right? Whereas when you are intentionally sinning, th this is going to be connected to like in... Um, in Exodus with Pharaoh and in Romans one with the, with the unbelievers there and the hardening of the heart, right? Um, that, uh, when you are just willfully fighting against the Lord and his word, um, the Lord is eventually just going to hand you over to that, uh, willful, um, uh, wickedness and just let you live in it. Um, whereas if, if you're ignorant of it, the Lord's going to come along, he's going to chastise you. He's going to instruct you, uh, in the true way that you would repent and live. Right. Uh, yeah. and so this is like what the, what the Lord brings up, like in, in Ezekiel, um, uh, I, the Lord do not desire the, the death of the wicked, but rather that he turn from his way and live. Um, so he, the, the Lord doesn't, uh, in this make an excuse for St. Paul's or any of our sins. Um, but he does recognize the reality, um, that, you know, like St. Paul, when he's, and he brings us up later when he's talking about his life that, um, you know, he's a, a, uh, as, as to, um, righteousness under the law, blameless as to zeal of a Pharisee, right. Um, that he is, uh, as far as he understands the law and the nature of the church, he's doing all the right things, right? Mm -hmm. And it takes the Lord actually coming and telling him otherwise um, through the revelation on the Damascus road and through, um, uh, now I'm blanking on the guy's name, uh, in Damascus. Ananias. Ananias, thank you. Uh, and through Ananias in, in revealing this to him on what the actual truth is. And then he's converted and he becomes the great apostle, right? So uh, mm -hmm. same with us, you know, 
all of us have acted ignorantly. Um, uh, and the Lord has in his mercy come and um, shown the light on that ignorance so that we would repent and turn and live. Yeah, the the fact that the fact that he uses the word mercy right there, but I received mercy. I think goes to show that this ignorance is not an excuse. If if it was some kind of an excuse, then there would be no need for mercy. But the fact that the Lord has to show mercy on him, which is which is undeserved, unearned, shows that ignorance is is not an excuse. But the right. Lord doesn't let that stop him from showing mercy. Right. Well, and, and the other thing, and I think I've said it and you, and you said it, um, this gets translated, um, uh, because I acted ignorantly and, and I would make the kind of the, the textual argument. Um, the word there can be translated as because or though, and I think that though is probably the better translation in this context because it's, it's, uh, the, the mercy isn't because of the ignorance. So it's kind of like what St. Paul says in Romans that, um, uh, we do not continue in sin that grace may abound, right? Um, our sin, um, our sinning more doesn't cause the Lord then to have mercy more, right? Our being ignorant doesn't cause the Lord to have mercy. The Lord has mercy in spite of our ignorance, right? Mm. Which is a better thing. Mm. Right. And so this, this ignorant action of St. Paul in unbelief, and and yet the mercy, verse 14, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. I think you, you talked about that progression in verse 13 of blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent. Here you have the grace of the Lord overflowing. Another, I mean, a further intensification now that the, the grace is going to overwhelm even all of that intensification on this this terrible history on Paul's part. Right. And, and not only that, but he, the overflowing moves into, um, the faith and love. Uh, so it overflows, uh, with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Right. So these, then there, there's kind of this interesting bracketing going on that, that you, you have, um, un- unbelief and hatred at the beginning and it ends in faith and love, which are their opposites. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and that is due again to the Lord's mercy, but mercy that overflows. And, and, you know, a lot of people are going to hear a reflection then of like the 23rd Psalm, for example, um, uh, that, um, my cup overflows, right. That this is the cup of mercy that the Lord hands to us, uh, to drink from, uh, and and it's just, it's never ending. Um, uh, Luther brings up this, this idea in, um, the large catechism under the fifth petition, um, forgive us our trespasses, uh, that if the Lord does not forgive continually, then we are lost. If if the Lord is not in a constant state of forgiving, then we're lost, right? Uh, which one reminds us of the, the depravity of our own sin, but also of the, the unending and overabundant, overflowing mercy that he has for us, right? Um, so we hear like, uh, uh, that the apostles coming in and Paul, uh, Peter coming in asking, you know, how often should I forgive? Uh, and Jesus says 70 times seven. And then you, and you're like, oh, well, that's a lot. And then you learn about the Lord's mercy and it's like, you know, seven times, 77 times seven times infinity. Right. 
it just like it just blows the whole thing out of proportion, uh, which is really, really wonderful for us. Right. Yeah. I mean, in, in Matthew 18, the the reference there to Peter and the how many times the, the parable that Jesus follows with is the mercy of the master who forgives the debt of, you know, the what the technical term that I heard in a sermon recently was was zillions of sins. Yeah. Right. He, he forgives. Zil- I mean, that's the Lord's mercy. It, it overflows above and beyond anything that we can imagine. And Paul talks this way. Oh, it's in Romans five, right? That uh, where is it? Romans five. If if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life? I don't know that that's the word. That may not be the verse I'm looking for, but I think it's a, it's in Romans I, five. That, that I think that's Romans six, actually, uh, or either there. Eight. No, here it is. Here it is. Romans five twenty. It's right before Romans six. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's that was the verse right. I was looking for. Right. Which, I mean, the same, same, that's what Paul himself has experienced here. Now, of course, as you, as you brought out earlier, this is not an excuse for us to go on sinning, but a recognition that, that in our sins, when we, when we recognize those zillions of sins that we've committed, when we find ourselves with St. Paul, the blasphemer, the persecutor, the insolent opponent, we see that progression that the Lord in his mercy covers it all uh, more than, than we even needed. Right. Yeah. That, so we we say like the, the cause of the Lord's mercy is not our sin. The cause of the Lord's mercy is His own character in being um, steadfast, uh, steadfast in His love towards us. Right. Um, that even though we continue to sin, right. all the more. Right. He is um, faithful and steadfast and continues to love and have mercy and forgive. Right. Um, that that's. It, it's never ending. Right, right. Yeah, it always it always overflows more than we need. And again, not because our, our sin like caused it, because that's simply who the Lord is. He is gracious, merciful. That's what he's done here to Paul. And all of this is, is building up to this trustworthy saying in verse 15, which we will pick up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUL. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, October 23rd. We're studying 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. We've got Pastor Sean Kilgo with us. He serves at the Northeast Kansas Lutheran Partnership. Pastor Kilgo, prior to the break, we left off right before Paul gets to verse 15, where he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. This is a, a very well-known text, I think. It, the hymn, Chief of Sinners, Though I Be, uh, we'll probably talk about that in a little bit. He's really been building to a climax. I'm not sure if 15 is the climax or maybe 16 and 17 are. But it, within this, you get in verse 15, the saying is trustworthy, which is 
worth a few moments of reflection. This, for one, this is something that shows up in the pastoral epistles on multiple occasions. It's unique to these three letters that we're looking at in this series. Besides that, Pastor Hugo, why is that such a important phrase from Paul? The saying is trustworthy. Yeah. So, th- so there's a, a couple of things in here. So, so one, the 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 actual uh, uh, phrasing of this is the word is faithful or the word is trustworthy, right? So, so the the word that's translated in English as saying is the word uh, logos, which is word. Um, and so there's, I, I at least in this context, I think that there is a, at least some reference to the incarnation itself. Uh, that the Jesus, who is the Word made flesh, which he's going to talk about in the very next uh, in the very next line, uh, is trustworthy. You can trust Jesus, right? But I think even more than that, that it is um, exactly what it sounds like that that the Lord's Word is trustworthy. The Lord's Word is faithful. When the Lord says something to you in the Scriptures, you can trust that Word, right? Uh, and so. I, I think one of the things that's going on here that, that maybe we ought to see is that there's this upholding of what are called the attributes of scripture, the the things that uh, kind of tell us what the Bible is. So we talk about how um, everything we believe is based on God's word. Uh, and if you ask, well, what is God's word? Uh, you're going to get at some point, you're going to get these seven attributes, uh, which are inspiration, infallibility, uh, inerrancy, uh, sufficiency, uh, uh, perspicuity, um, efficacy, and authoritativeness. Um, uh, a couple of maybe unfamiliar words in there. Uh, sufficiency means that it's uh, you, you don't need anything else for it. So the, the, the Lord's word is everything we need for this faith and life um, and to bring us into the resurrection Uh uh, it and you know some people might say, well, what about you know baptism, Lord's Supper? And we remember it even as we're taught this in the Catechism that baptism, water apart from God's word, is just plain water. It's not baptism until you have God's word and promise attached to it, right? Same with the Lord's Supper. Same with the absolution. Everything ultimately relies on having God's word, that, and so that is sufficient. Uh, it's everything we need. Perspicuity is the fancy word for uh, being clear. It's kind of ironic that the word for clarity uh, is not clear for most people. I chuckle at that. Uh, efficacious is uh, uh, powerful that it um, it actually does things. So like when we talk about uh, the Lord creating things, he does so with his word, with his speaking, and that the scripture is authoritative. It's the final rule and norm, as we say, like in the confessions, the sole source and norm of all uh, doctrine and teaching and life uh, in the church. Uh, it's, it's the only rule. Uh, anything that goes against that rule it, um, has to be declared wrong. Uh, and so what, what's interesting is you have all these things that are laid out for us. Um, and uh, I just mentioned the other three that really quickly. Inspiration is that that God um, speaks all things from his own mouth. Um, all scripture is breathed out by God. We'll get that later in the in this series. Um, and then um, inerrancy and infallibility are very much related. It's that the scriptures don't lie and that the scriptures can't lie. Um uh, and those are both connected to who the author is, right? Because God's the author, they don't have errors. And because God's the author, they can't have errors, right? So uh, all of those, those are the seven. 
I think it's interesting to, to consider this, that this, the, the word is faithful or the word is trustworthy is kind of this, this shortened phrase that then can encapsulate all seven attributes, right? So that the word being trustworthy comes to us because God himself has spoken it and it doesn't lie to us and it can't lie to us and that it's um, uh, clear and understandable for us. And because it's those things, um, because it's trustworthy, um, it is also therefore um, efficacious in our lives. It's sufficient for it's all we need and it's authoritative for our lives. So it's kind of interesting how it, it kind of unpacks all of those in, in an interesting way. So the word is trustworthy or the saying is trustworthy as it here is what you're what you're saying then is that it does apply to what follows the the statement as we will talk about Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost it applies to that but it's broader than that as well right well and and that sort of right so we, we should probably say um that the statement Christ came into the world to save sinners is in fact the the content of the entirety of the scriptures, right? Um, everything that the Lord is is teaching us in the scriptures is is geared towards that. Jesus Himself, you know, talks about this: that you search the scriptures for you believe that in them you have life, and you're correct, right? That's kind of assumed in that. Um, and it is they that testify of me, right? So if you want to have life, you search the scriptures, and when you do that, you're going to get me, Jesus, right? Um, and what are you going to get Jesus doing? You're going to get Jesus coming into the world to save sinners. Right. Uh, which is, I mean, we should remember that's what his name even means. Right. Um, so, uh, so yeah, we, we can say, um, that this phrase, the saying is trustworthy. What saying Christ came in the world to save sinners, that saying is trustworthy, but that saying uh, Christ came in the world to save sinners is the, the content of all the scriptures as well. Mm-hmm. Right. Ev- everything's driving to that point. So, mm-hmm. uh, uh, what what we probably want to hear in this when every time Saint Paul says this, the saying is trustworthy. The word is tr- is is faithful or trustworthy. Is Saint Paul is reminding us you can trust what the Bible says, right? So I mean, it's to, I should have just said that and gone on. But you <laughs> well, you, you can I'm a, I'm you a can pastor, trust. I it. have to say more. <laughs> That's right. You, you can trust it and you should trust it. I mean, he says these, this, the, the word is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. This it's very clear there that you should trust it. it. There's no if, ands, or buts about it. So the saying given here, and it is, maybe it's, it's perhaps telling that this is the first one of these that shows up, as you said, a summary of the scriptures. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Two, two parts here. First, the objective fact of what Christ did. And then secondly, a subjective part that it's for even Paul, the right. foremost of sinners. Right. Yeah. And and so I think we read this and we we skip over the very front part of it, unfortunately, because this is really beautiful. Christ came into the world. Like, just stop there and think about that for a minute. That is a profound thing to say, Right. Uh, and we ought to hear a reflection of John 1, 14 in that, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? So so Christ, if, if we'll remember, Christ is not Jesus's name. Jesus is Jesus's name. Christ is his title, right? Um, the, the, you know, and Christ means, you know, Messiah or anointed one or, or, or savior, um, that, the, that the, the, the savior of humanity came into the world, Right. And God's made it very clear in the Old Testament 
that that the the Messiah is going to be himself, right? Um, and so this is you know very much a parallel. Uh, God came into the world like that. That's that's an astounding sort of thing to to say, right? And so it's good for us to to not just run past that when we say Christ came into the world. It, like pause and rejoice in that, um, and and then go on to the next thing. Um, why did he come into the world? Well, it was to save sinners. This is the uh, the the content of all of Jesus's work is to save sinners, and and there's there's a lot to think about in that statement. Um, one that it is the fall into sin that causes the Lord's incarnation, right? That that the Lord doesn't have to become incarnate; it, it doesn't have to come into our flesh unless humanity falls into sin. Um, and and that indicates two things for us. Then, one, um, how uh, how how bad we messed up, right? That that the the creator actually has to come into the creation and become a part of creation in order to fix it. Um, but also, it indicates how great the Lord's love is for His creation. That He doesn't just wipe it clean and start over, right? He He does. Um, go through all the work of coming into our flesh and dying and rising mm. uh, in order to redeem humanity and all of creation that fell with it. So that's that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is this reminder that uh, uh, Christ um, has come for sinners, right? Christ is for sinners only. And, and he says this in, in, in a number of uh, ways, you know, that, that I came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel or those who are sick, uh, those who are not sick have no need of a physician, or I, I came not for the righteous, for but for the unrighteous. Like Jesus seems to talk about this quite a bit, um, almost like it's a really important sort of thing for us to to remember that the, the, the people that he's here for are the ones who, who need forgiveness, which I mean, is everybody. But there's this temptation to try and think of ourselves as being better than we are. Um, and, and we ought to remember in this, that as soon as you say that you're not a sinner, then Jesus isn't for you anymore. All right. So if you want Jesus to be for you, then confess yourself to be a sinner. Right. Um, now we talked about this a little bit before we, we started, but, um, I'm going to, it's going to be story time with pastor here for a minute. Um, <laughs> so before we were Lutheran, uh, I had inklings that I wanted to go into the ministry. And the, the, the guy that was our pastor at the time, uh, non-denom kind of charismatic sort of church. I had asked him about this and he said, oh yeah, that would be a, a, a great thing for you to go in the ministry. But I, I need to tell you that before you go to be a pastor, uh, you need to be without sin for at least five years. I was like, oh, okay. Um, and like at, at the moment, like I didn't really know what to say about it. Um, later on, this was one of the the driving points of us leaving that church. One, because we realized just how wrong of a statement that was, but also because it, we came to realize like what that meant that he thought about himself, right? Uh, that he didn't consider himself a sinner. Hmm. And this is a really dangerous place to be. And, it, and I remember kind of struggling with this, you know, what it would mean for me to not be a sinner. Uh, and not only how hard that would be, um, that seemed like an impossible task and God be praised that that was my attitude about it. Um, 
because it, it, it drove me further into the scriptures and not further into myself. Right. Um, but, but I just didn't know what to do with Jesus then once like, okay, so if I'm not, you know, once I get to this point where like, I'm not sinning anymore, what do I do with Jesus now? Cause it seems like this is, this is what Jesus is always doing. He's always dealing with sin. Um, and for that matter, what you do with the rest of the Bible? Um, so, uh, there, there's my, my little story. Um, if it, it, so, you know, if you ever run across a, a, a pastor who's, you know, telling you that you, you are capable of living a life without sin, you should probably run away from that pastor. Um, mm. they're, they're not being faithful to the scriptures. Um, and they're telling you that, that you don't need Jesus, right. Which is even, you know, worse. Uh, and the third thing is that, um, and, and I get this from Gerhard. I hadn't thought about this, but this is kind of a, an interesting thing that works into here on, um, that Christ came to save sinners, um, that this, this includes infants, right? Uh, because Christ is talking quite a bit in the, in the gospels about the, you know, the little children and the infants, and all these, all these kids being brought to him and to such belong the kingdom of God that he's for these kids, right? Which means that they're sinners. Um, and there, there's an interesting argument then to be had in this on when we are talking with our friends and neighbors who want to, um, argue things like an age of accountability, that you're not accountable for your sin until a certain age or you, that you don't have sin until a certain age. Um, that th- this is one of these texts that is kind of, um, implicitly going to be arguing against that. Um, and you can just say, well, well, is Jesus for, is Jesus for babies? Oh well, Yeah. Well, then they're sinners because Christ came into the world to save sinners, right? And then you can work from there. I mean, that starts solving a lot of problems, like in, things like infant baptism. Well, if they're a sinner, well, then they, they need things like baptism, right? And if they're a sinner, they need to be in church and hearing the Lord's word and receiving his absolution, right? Mm-hmm. So once you can kind of get that one down, then it starts solving a lot of things. I mean, you you just, the way you laid that out, Pastor Hillel, you do see how the totality of the scriptures is summarized in, in this full statement. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul adds, of whom I am the foremost. So it's not just the sinners who are only up to like this level. <laughs> it's It's all sinners, even the very worst whom Paul claims to be. Right. Which is an interesting thing. Like, I think this is an instance because we've got the hymn and because this is such a beloved passage, we're so familiar with this, that it, it loses its shockingness, right? Yeah. Cause you, you would half expect Paul to say, you know, um, either, um, of whom you are the foremost or of whom I was the foremost. Right. But he's talking about himself and he, he uses the present tense of whom I am the foremost, right? This is after conversion. This is late in Paul's life. He's been an apostle for, for years now. Um, established churches all over Asia Minor. And he says, I'm, I'm the foremost sinner, right? Um, now, he's not saying that he actually is like by if you went and you, you know, graded everybody's sins and gave everybody, you know, a, uh, you know, this person's got like a, a 97, this person's got a 98.9, Paul's at like 99.999, right? Um, he's not saying that. Um, he's just saying that uh, in his own thinking, the way he considers himself um, is to be worse than all the all the other people around him as as a sinner. Um, 
And this is simply a display of hum- humility on St. Paul's uh, St. Paul's point. Uh, now, I'm going to steal this from Pastor Wolf Mueller. We'll give him credit in the... Uh, we'll footnote him in the show notes or something. <laughs> um, uh, the, he, he brought this up a, a, a long time ago, but it's never kind of left my my memory. And, and it's that, that we ought to have... Um, pride in office, but humility in person. And I think that you can see this with St. Paul. Um, He doesn't doesn't do it too much here. But if you think about how St. Paul will talk about his apostleship, his office of apostle, um, it's always in these glowing terms. He he speaks of him, his of his office very highly, as he should, because the office of apostle is a very high office. But when he talks about himself, his person, um, you know, he's he's the worst of sinners, or um, he's unworthy to be called an apostle, or you know, whatever it might be, right? Um, and this is a good example for us on how to approach our own lives, right? We can think about the offices that we stand in, whether it's a pastor or a father or a mother or, you know, a worker, any of these vocations that the Lord gives us to stand in. And we can consider that office to be a a high and noble calling and consider ourselves as, you know, because I'm a father, um, that that's an awesome thing. But as Sean, I'm a worm, right? As Luther would say. And Luther's another great example of this. If you, if you listen to Luther talk about the pastoral office, glowing terms. If you listen to Luther talk about himself, uh, you, you would think that he was, you know, the devil reincarnate sometimes, right? Um, or I guess the devil incarnate since he was never incarnate in the first place, but that's yeah, different. Uh, so, and then we have the, the hymn that, that brings us up, right? Chief of sinners, though I be right. The, the very beloved hymn. And I will spare all the listeners me singing that on the radio, but sing it at home, sing it do at sing, home with your, with your home. family. Yeah. Always, always sing. Always sing. So St. Paul then, as he continues in, into verse 16, he's, he says, look, I, but I received mercy and now I'm, I'm an example, which is an amazing thing. And this is one of the way the Lutherans, the Lutheran confessions talk about the examples of the saints is that we would find comfort when the Lord shows mercy to them. Goodness, if, if the Lord showed mercy to Paul, who is the foremost of sinners, he will show mercy to me as well. We should take that comfort. Pastor Kelly, we got about six minutes here, so I'm going to keep moving us through the yep. text. Give us yep. a, just a few brief notes on that doxology that Paul just breaks into spontaneously there in verse 17. Yeah, so he goes, you know, to the to the King of Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. We've got another hymn that comes out of that one, yep. right? So we've yep. got two hymns that have come out of just a couple of verses here, uh, which probably tell us something about this text. Um, but it, it's this this thing that Saint Paul does a lot, where he's get, he gets to talking about the mercies of God, and then he just breaks out into a into a hymn or a doxology or whatever, and it's it just shows us like the 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 sort of joy that St. Paul has over these things. He just can't help himself. And it, and it shows us too, the sort of joy we ought to have as well. When we start talking about these things, you just can't help but break out in song, right? That our lives should be like a musical. We're just walking around randomly breaking out into songs, except songs right. of praise to God. 
Well, and that, the divine service mirrors that for us. You think yeah. through the, the the divine service after the confession of sins and the absolution, and then the intro it, and then you're bursting, or actually, I guess after the Kyrie, the Lord have mercy, you're bursting into the hymn of praise. And similarly, mm-hmm. with the the preparatory part of the service of the sacrament, the preface, and then the pastor says, therefore, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, that's what, what he says, saying, but you sing. Because right. that's what Christians do right. it is this sort of spontaneous praise from the joy of knowing that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So from that, then, Pastor Kilgo, Paul repeats his charge, the, the charge that he's entrusted previously he comes back to that, speaking again to Timothy, who has been ordained. He's been he's had the hands laid on him in the pastoral ministry. And, and, and you get similar language to that charge that we had in verse five. Paul talks about holding faith and a good conscience again. A couple of things that stand out, and again, we're we're running short on time. Wage the good warfare stands out. And then, of course, these two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who are mentioned, they've made shipwreck of their faith. And Paul says he's handed them over to Satan. Well, we got four minutes, Pastor Kogo. I'll I'll do what I can. I'll talk fast. Um, There we go. so, So waging good warfare, we should, you know, recognize this from the end of the epistle and then St. Paul bring it up again in second Timothy. Um, but St. Paul ends the epistle in this way too, uh, with this exhortation to fight the good fight, right? So, so the beginning of right at the exhortation, this charge I entrust to you. And then right at the end, as he's leaving the letter, he's bracketing this with, you know, this reminder, fight the fight. And it's a good reminder for us that as, you know, as, as pastors particularly, uh, but as Christians in general, that we are at war, Right. Um, and but as St. Paul reminds us in Ephesians, here's a you know a nice connection with this um, that we we are not fighting against um, flesh and blood, but against the uh, spiritual forces of this um, uh, present darkness. Right. That we are fighting against the devil and his minions. And so the Lord um, then clothes us with his own armor. Right. He protects us with his armor, which is our baptism, and he gives us the sword of the spirit to fight with. Um, and if you look through the, the scriptures over and over, you have all this militaristic language showing up. And, and we forget about this, I think, um, that, that there is a battle for souls that's being waged constantly. And like it or not, as a Christian, you're in the middle of that battle, um, not only fighting for your own soul, right, fighting to, to keep the faith, but also fighting for the faith of those around you as well. Um, if you think about, uh, um, battle lines and stuff like that, uh, you go out to war and you are relying not just on yourself, but on the, on the soldier standing to the left and right of you as well, that they're going to fight. And as soon as, you know, the worst thing in the world that can happen to you as a soldier is that the people fighting next to you get scared and they run away. And now you're by yourself, right? Now, God be praised that the one who never leaves us in the battlefield is our Lord Jesus, Right. Um, and this is what Luther brings up in, in a mighty fortress. I'd, I'd encourage the listener to go, uh, think about warfare and then read through a mighty fortress. It's what the whole thing is about. Uh, but he says this, um, uh, that when, when he talks about Jesus, um, uh, uh, ask ye, who is this Jesus Christ? It is of Sabbath Lord. Sabbath is the, um, army, um, Lord of the armies. Um, and there's none other God. He holds the field forever. 
that that is the battlefield, that he's always on the battlefield waging war for our sake. He will never leave us. Um, so, as, uh, you know, even even though we might be, you know, unfortunately left by uh, brothers in arms sometimes, um, we can we can rejoice that our Lord Jesus never leaves us as as he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Um, and then you get, you know, uh, the, the negative example, like you said, Hymenaeus and Alexander. We don't know exactly who Alexander is. There's a few that show up. Second Timothy four, uh, he's mentioned, uh, the coppersmith there. That could be the same one. Hymenaeus is a uncommon enough name that pretty sure that this is who he's talking about in second Timothy two. And he's denying the resurrection, um, uh, to come. He says already happened. So St. Paul hands them over to Satan in order that they would not learn to blaspheme. And this is describing the work of excommunication, the removing from the from the church's communion. But we should remember uh, what St. Paul says, so that they may not learn to blaspheme. He's not doing this because he wants to be mean. He's not doing this because he hates these guys. He's doing this for exactly the opposite reason. He wants them to repent. Uh, Gerhard says this really nicely, that the, the church's intent when it excommunicates is that the sinner may return to a sound mind. Or like he says earlier, uh, that, the, the, that the sinner would have a good conscience again. Um, so, so the intent, um, uh, I'll just kind of quote Luther on this. Luther says this in the third article of the creed and the large catechism that everything in the Christian church is to be ordered toward this goal that we daily receive nothing but the forgiveness of sins so long as we live here. And so this is the goal, even of things like excommunication, that we stand under the Lord's forgiveness. And this is the goal of the commendation that we receive in the church as well, that we would stand under the Lord's forgiveness, um, that everything we're doing in the church is ordered towards this, that we stand under the Lord's mercy as the chief of sinners, that every single one of us is the chief of sinners. Uh, but we are the sinners that the Lord Jesus has come into this world to save. Pastor Sean Kilgo serves at the Northeast Kansas Lutheran Partnership, helping us this morning with 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. Pastor Kilgo, thanks for being our guest today. Yeah, great to be here. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.